Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. Glad you've joined us. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going through a sermon series on Luke 24, which is the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm going to read to you the same passage we've been reading for several weeks, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Uh, it, it'll be on the screen, but I also encourage you, if you want to look at it yourself, in your own Bible or on your device, it's great. We're going to be going to a couple other verses besides the one, the ones that we read right now. But we're going to read Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. On the road to a village called Emmaus, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, it says, Now the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along together? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going to walk further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us. It is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he walked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So they got up and returned immediately to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven other disciples and those with them assembled together and they said, it's true. The Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two of them told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The main verses we're focusing on as we've been looking at a selection of these verses each time is verses 25 to 27. Again, let me read those again, these three short verses. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
concerning himself. Jesus says right there in that passage that the entire Bible, the Old Testament, before he's ever even arrived, is actually about him. And so much of the Bible, what he's, he's trying to help them see who he is. And this is a very common and important question in the Bible. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is Palm Sunday, which means it's the beginning of the week leading up to Easter. So on Thursday, we have Monday, Thursday, and on Friday, we have Good Friday, and next Sunday, we have Easter. And today is Palm Sunday. This is a very important week in the Christian calendar. Christians all over the world for centuries and centuries have celebrated these days, this week of Jesus' unjust trial leading to his crucifixion and his death and then his resurrection. Because what's so important in this week, why we, why we celebrate it, despite the horror thing, the horrible things that happened during it, is that it gives us the answer to who is Jesus. See, on Palm Sunday, this day, many, many, many years ago, as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, people were, were celebrating him as a king, even worshiping him. It was called Palm Sunday, and they laid down these branches. They celebrated that Jesus was coming into their city, and they said, Hosanna. That was the word they used, Hosanna, Hosanna. That was the way they celebrated. But by the end of the week, Hosanna's gave, turned away to horror. By the end of the week, the hope that they had had become heartbreak. In one week, everything came undone. And this is in large measure because of what had happened, but it was also in large measure because the stories of hope that we tell ourselves are rooted in what we believe is true, and what we believe shapes the stories that we tell. And the story that these disciples and all the people of Jerusalem had believed was that Jesus was going to bring them a better future. They had longed for a better future for so long. They longed for a better system to be a part of, a better world. And they believed Jesus was the one who was going to bring it. Because think about what they'd seen. For three years, they'd watched Jesus. They'd walked with him. And they'd seen his miracles. They'd seen his healings. They'd seen his power to cast out demons. Blind people could see. People who couldn't walk from birth were now sprinting through town. People who had been rejected were now welcomed. The corrupt people who had power had been challenged. Jesus was spreading hope that there really could be a different kind of world. A new society. Everywhere he went, he called it the kingdom. And they believed him. They believed him, but now he's dead. By the end of the week, he's dead. All the things they had celebrated, the hope they had looked forward to, Jesus is dead. And so now they struggle to believe that this kingdom could be real. A real and better life could actually be possible. The disciples and many others who were with them, they heard Jesus preach about this new kingdom, and they didn't understand certain things within it. They often even dismissed or rejected what Jesus said, even those who most closely followed him. And the main thing, the biggest thing they struggled with was when it came to suffering. And Jesus said things often to his own disciples like, I will leave one day, but you will be here to, to continue on in the kingdom, but you will suffer. People will make you suffer for bringing the kingdom, for being a part of the kingdom. And they didn't like that very much. But the thing they liked even less was how often Jesus talked about his own suffering that Jesus repeatedly said, it's a pattern throughout all the Gospels, that he kept saying, I will suffer, I will die, I will rise. Those three words go together a lot. Multiple times in Matthew, multiple times in Luke, multiple times in the Gospels. Even in this one chapter that we're looking at, Luke 24, verses 6 to 8, uh, the angels say to the women at the tomb, remember how he told you that he must be delivered over, crucified, raised. That means suffer, die, rise. Or in verses 26 and 27, which we just read, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, then enter his glory? And the way he would enter glory? By rising from the dead. 
or verses 44 and 45. It was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Repeatedly, Jesus has talked about this um, before he died. And then after he died, they're still talking about it. Delivered, crucified, and now alive? Risen? The disciples always hated it when Jesus brought this up. And there's a good reason why, right? Because if the story of hope that they believed, the story of hope that they told themselves, rooted in what Jesus said, is that Jesus is bringing a new kind of society, a new kind of hope, a new kind of family, a new kind of reality, work that is always meaningful, families that don't fall apart, love that lasts forever. Well, that doesn't really seem possible if the guy who's bringing it dies. So Cleopas and this other disciple who are meeting Jesus on the road, they missed the entire whole rise part of the narrative. Okay, Jesus, now we saw him. We didn't like that he talked about it before, but now we literally watched him suffer. We literally watched him die, and it's over. Our hopes, our dreams are gone. But the angels said in verse 5 and 6, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here in the tomb. He is risen. As one commentator put it, though, these disciples on this journey to Emmaus, which is a town about seven miles from Jerusalem, they're walking, they left Jerusalem, they're journeying back, and on the journey to Emmaus, there's this ironic reality. These living disciples talk about a dead Jesus while a living Jesus speaks to lifeless disciples. Their hopes are crushed. They're lifeless. They think everything's lost, but they're literally talking to the guy who changed everything. Living disciples talk about a dead Jesus. While living Jesus speaks with these lifeless disciples, the disciples bemoan. They're saying, you know, other people that we know, these women, these other disciples, they haven't, they haven't seen Jesus. Uh, we wish that they had, and yet they're standing there talking to Jesus, failing to see him themselves. But something happens in this passage. Something that's so powerful about Luke 24 is they go through a transformation. Look at verse 19. Here's what they say. This is their own, out of their own mouths. Here's what they believe Jesus is. Who is Jesus? This is what they say. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem us. He, we'd hoped he'd be the one who would give us hope, is what they're saying. But he's, he's a prophet. He's powerful. But what do they say in verse 34, by the end of our passage that we read? The Lord has risen indeed the Lord. They don't call him prophet. They don't say, well, we hoped he would redeem us. He would make some things better. They say he is the Lord. What changed? What changed in this short time period on this day that Jesus rose from the grave? Who do they say Jesus is? It shifts from being a prophet, a guy, a teacher we listened to, someone we hoped was powerful enough to change our current reality to being he is the risen Lord. He is First of all, Lord of everything, over the universe, all things, and yet also one who actually is risen, who walked out of a tomb. And this is a question that's really important, a question worth exploring in this week leading up to Easter, because every year, uh, people around the world, Christians and others, gather together and go, really, who is this Jesus? So we ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Throughout the Gospels, people and Jesus repeatedly ask that question. Matthew 21, Mark 4, Luke 5, Luke 7, John 12, Mark, Mark 8, Matthew 16, Luke 9, all over repeatedly it says, who is this? 
Who is this guy who forgives sins? Who is this guy who heals broken people? Who is this who claims that he will, at one point, die but also live forever? They keep going, who is this guy? And Jesus himself asks his own disciples repeatedly, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus then answers that question. When they answer the question, he tells them essentially, the way that you answer this question determines your destiny. That sounds wild. Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to the question determines your destiny. What he's saying is to find life-changing hope, you have to come to know who Jesus really is, just as the disciples did. And the thing that they said about him was that he is the risen Lord. The thing is, that doesn't automatically, that reality, that understanding of things doesn't come to anybody automatically, right? The people who walked with him for three years literally didn't get it, and they were standing right in front of him. Or consider this, I recently read a quote by a University of Oxford professor who was a historian, and he decided he wrote a 1,200-plus page book called A History of Christianity, the first 3,000 years. And in the book, he says, I still appreciate the seriousness with which religious mentality brings to the, the religious mentality brings to the mystery and the misery of human existence. However, I live with the constant puzzle of wondering how something so apparently crazy can be so captivating to millions of mem- other members of my species. 1,200 plus pages of Christian history, of the history of Christianity, and he's not a believer, right? He doesn't believe. And his, his takeaway from this is like, millions and millions of people have believed this, but I find it crazy. But my question to you would be, well, what is it that he's right? Millions and millions, millions of people throughout the centuries have become believers. So what is it that has captivated so many millions of members of the human species with Jesus? The thing that captivates so many Christians is that they believe Christianity is true. They've come to the conclusion that it really happened. It's not simply a system of beliefs. It's an event rooted in a person in history who suffered and died and rose. And the reason that anyone could or even should consider believing Christianity is true is because Jesus rose from the dead. What happened in history that has captivated people with Jesus? What do do they say? Many people say, you know, I like his teaching. I think his miracles are interesting. I appreciate his ethics and how he loved his neighbors. Great. Those are good things. Those are also true things. However, all people throughout the last 2,000 years of Christian history... No matter what culture or what time period they lived in, they've all ended up saying the exact same thing. And it's not, he's a great teacher, he's a good ethic, he has great ethics, or we love his miracles. They've said the same things the disciples did. Jesus is Lord. The Christian answer to who do you say that Jesus is, is Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of everything, and that means it is worth everything to know and walk with him. So when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord, what we mean is there's no higher authority in the universe. There is no higher authority in our lives than Jesus. He is the highest authority because he proved himself to be God, the only one who could conquer what was conquering us, sin and death, by rising from the dead. 
and promising to set right a troubled world. Here's the thing. The resurrection of Jesus is so crucial and so important because it doesn't let you or I reduce Jesus to a brave hero who went through suffering and died on a cross. It, it's not, it doesn't let us reduce Jesus to being a good man with great ethics. It doesn't let us reduce Jesus to being a wise teacher who was really gifted in the classroom. It doesn't let us reduce Jesus to being a social justice warrior who wanted to set a few things in his town right. It doesn't let us reduce him to being a cultural icon or a kind friend or a good luck charm. He is infinitely more, and he must be if he rose from a grave. He claims ultimate authority over life, but that's meaningless in one sense unless he also claims ultimate authority over death because life beyond death is better than just life before death. That's a lot of power. And yet this is the struggle, isn't it? That all people, really everywhere, most people have opinions about Jesus and they don't always match up with what Jesus says is true about himself. It's really easy to reduce or dismiss Jesus as something other than Lord, other than the highest authority uh, in the universe, other than one who has proven his ability to defeat the things that has held a reign of terror over you and I for all of human history, death. Death is our master. If you want to think about what's Lord over you right now, if it's not Jesus, it's death. Because death is something that you and I have never figured out how to defeat. And the thing that can defeat you is the thing that can ultimately have mastery over you. So the disciples on the road to Emmaus say, well, Jesus is dead. We saw it happen. We thought he was going to bring the hope of a better world, a better country, but now he is dead, and so he is defeated. He was powerful in his teaching. He was great in his healing actions, but he is dead Story over. However, if Jesus did that third thing, not just suffer, not just die, but rise, rise from the dead, it means he is not captive to the normal, natural order of things. He conquered natural death and demonstrates, therefore, that he has some kind of supernatural life, a life that is supernature. It exceeds our nature because our nature dies. He is Lord over the natural world, Lord over all of its processes, and he can reverse the irreversible. He can undo death. And who else among us can do that? This is why the resurrection matters with respect to how you think of Jesus. Either Jesus and Christians are just crazy for claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and is eternally alive, or... Everyone else is crazy for not even being willing to consider the evidence of an empty tomb. If someone rose from the dead and then tells you that you also can have the very same power that raised him from the dead, well, you're either crazy for considering this is true if it's utterly false, or you're absolutely crazy for never considering it at all. Because if you would consider it, and if it's true that there's an empty tomb and a risen Jesus, then you want to ask, How do I get this for myself? As the great writer H.G. Wells once wrote, either there's something crazy about this man Jesus or our hearts are simply too small for his message. And this is exactly what Jesus says to us in Luke 24. Verse 25 to 27 again. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Our hearts are too small for his message. Because the question isn't just, who do you say that Jesus is? 
But in this passage, we see Jesus has something to say about who we are. And so what does Jesus say about us? How foolish, how slow, how slow to believe, how slow of heart to believe, it literally says. So while the disciples think Jesus has this problem, Jesus is walking along the road with them, they don't really recognize him, they're kept from seeing him, but they're talking to him, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And they say, Jesus died, haven't you been in Jerusalem? Don't you know all the events that have happened? And they have to explain it to him. They think Jesus has a problem. He's not up to date on his current events. But then Jesus comes along and tells him, you're not up to date on all of how history works. How foolish you are. Don't you know that it's been written for ages past that this is exactly how it had to happen? Don't you see? But Jesus says that they can't. They can't see. They can't interpret Scripture, and therefore, they cannot interpret their lives correctly because they have two problems, a problem of the mind and a problem of the heart. When he says foolish, foolishness is in the mind. It's an, it's an inability either to think or an inability or an unwillingness to use our thinking abilities to actually think through something, or a problem of the heart when he says how slow of heart you are to believe. Let me look at those really as we discover what it is that Jesus says about us, he says, look, we have a problem with the mind. We cannot properly interpret life because we have not properly interpreted the Bible, and we cannot properly interpret the Bible because we have a problem with our minds, and the mind problem is called foolishness, how foolish you are. This isn't Jesus being mean. He's not being mean or rude to his disciples. He's not saying, you are utter fools. What idiots? Instead, he's saying, he's not saying, you're fools. He's saying, you're foolish. You're acting like fools in certain ways. You have foolishly interpreted your life. You have foolishly interpreted the things God has said. They've been looking for hope in all the wrong places in a way. They were right. They were on track. It was Jesus, but because they cut out half the story that God told about the whole rising part, rising from the dead, they lost all their hope. They'd forgotten Isaiah 55, which where God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I have greater thoughts than you can think. They were looking for a conquering Savior King who was going to give them the best life now. But Jesus was saying what you should have been looking for was a suffering Savior King who would give you the best life forever. To be foolish means to be unwise. And generally, Jesus is saying that, yes, they have plenty of mental capacity. These guys are not imbeciles. But they have not been able to think rightly about what's right in front of them all along. They are thinking, show's over, time to go home. There's nothing left for us here. Our hope is crushed. Jesus has died. But Jesus tells them, here's what you should be thinking. Well, it was absolutely necessary for me to die. That's what he says when he says, did not the Messiah have to, or it literally says, was it not necessary for him to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Necessary. There, what that means is no other way. Jesus is saying, the thing you should be thinking about is how there was no other way for salvation from this world and this life to occur than through dying on the cross and rising again. The most necessary thing for us to think about in order to have real hope that lasts for a long time is that Jesus had to suffer, die, and rise. And yet, no one, Jesus is saying, had really, really puts this together from the Old Testament. When he says he opened to them, Moses, or beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained or interpreted to them all that was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He says, the entire Old Testament is about me, and all of it is about this. 
All of it's about this singular story. All those other stories are real true stories, yet they point to something beyond themselves. They are bigger than what happened only in history. And so what he's saying is, it's necessary for you to see this. Let me give you a couple examples of what I think Jesus is saying. When you go back, if you go look at some of the major characters in the Old Testament, consider in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah. How does the pattern of suffering preceding glory work out in their lives? Abraham and Sarah suffered from marital problems and a lot of infertility, while God yet told them, I'm going to produce all the families of the earth from you who believe. I'm going to produce a family of faith from you. And yet these were childless people suffering before glory. They waited waited, uh, decades before they had a child while God yet told them that this was how he was going to save humanity, through their child that they didn't have. And then they did. Suffering preceded glory for them. Joseph, also in the book of Genesis, suffered under terrible work conditions from a broken family and went to prison unjustly, while God yet was using all of that to exalt him to the highest position in the government one day so that he would save many from a famine. He had all the power in the world. He went from being one of the most powerless to the most powerful. His story went from suffering to glory. Or Moses. Moses suffered from constant fear and speech impediments while God said, I'm going to use you to speak to the most powerful tyrant of the known world in that day, Pharaoh. Moses suffered from these things, yet God was going to exalt him to be the unlikely leader who would speak freedom to the most powerful tyrant. The guy with the speech impediment was going to be the guy who spoke freedom and released captives. The prophets, all the Old Testament prophets, suffered rejection. Essentially, they were bullied repeatedly over and over again, while God was yet going to exalt them to be those who represented his social justice in the world. Those who had been treated unjustly were going to be very much be those who brought about the glory of God's justice in their time and place, or at least promised that it was going to come soon. Maybe most of all, King David sets this pattern promised by God. David suffered from homelessness, powerlessness, and a lot of temptation to take power from others in order to feel better about himself. Yet God was going to use him to become an actual king who would be exalted so that instead of being homeless, he brought the most stable homes to the region that had ever existed in his area. He brought the most consistent power and peace through his political rule, and he became the most wealthy king Israel had ever known. God took someone who went from homelessness to creating the best homes that region had ever seen, from suffering to glory. And then, not only that, God promised David that though David reigned for 40 years, there was going to be another king who was like David, who would come from David's family line, who was going to reign not for 40 years, but forever. Jesus is saying, look, guys, if God was going to send someone to save the world, the way it had to happen was the same way it's always happened. God raises people up, and even in their suffering, uh, He yet brings them to a new place of glory, a new reality far outweighing the pain of their past suffering. So if He was going to bring a Savior to not just save some people in a certain time and place, but to save people forever, wouldn't it be necessary that it would follow the same pattern God has always said was set in place? This is the pattern. God raises up someone to bring hope and redemption into the world that is suffering. And yet, in order to do that, the one he raises up suffers and struggles for years, yet is ultimately exalted to a good and glorious place by God's faithful plan that even suffering cannot defeat his glory. 
This pattern has been there all along. It's the norm. It's not surprising, actually. It's a story that you and I even, I think, love to embrace in movies and books that we read. I think from pretty much every type of story or movie that you might watch, it's essentially, uh, in one sense, it's like an underdog story, right? Someone has suffered and struggled unjustly, yet overcomes all the odds to become successful or honored or rich or popular. In one sense, you could say, this is God's story. God created everything. He made a beautiful world. He had a beautiful human family and a peaceful life. Yet his family rebelled, his world was broken, and peace was shattered. Yet he refused to quit. Though century after century, people rejected him, and and things went wrong repeatedly as he sought to restore beauty and peace and relationships through people like Abraham and Moses and David. It never quite worked out, yet he stuck with his plan. He worked at his plan till just the right time. He knew exactly what he had to do. The same kind of thing you see in great war movies or superhero movies or every great love story. The main character has to eventually put their life on the line and maybe even die in order to bring about the actual good outcome. And that's exactly what God did. He comes to earth. He heals people. He helps people. But he's arrested, murdered, and uh, and suffers and murders for doing the things that he did. And yet he says, this was no mistake. This was the plan all along. I knew that I would die. I knew that people would hate me despite me bringing this other kingdom. He knew, though, that when he died, he would die to save everyone. And they could walk into a new kind of life if he would die for them. No, here's the thing about it. It's not really very significant to know about a first century man who suffered and died if he didn't rise. It's also not that significant to know even about specifically Jesus if he's just a man who suffered, died, and potentially rose from a grave. If he doesn't have a certain special ability to overcome suffering through his perfection, See, this isn't the story of just one person who suffered for somebody else, because all of us maybe have opportunity to do that. All of us one day might have to suffer, or maybe we already have, for some people in our lives in order to love them well. But what's different about Jesus is he suffered as one who could actually win. He could actually win forever against suffering. And isn't this, in one sense, this is, uh, as he suffered... He was bringing about a new world, a new earth, a new humanity who could join him in fighting to bring his peace, his beauty, his restoration and relationship back to earth. And this is what happens, right? Zombie movies are kind of like this. A disease has taken over the world, but one hero can bring a remedy and rebuild a new humanity free of zombies and death, right? A new life, a new beginning. Or you think about Uh, a romantic comedy, a man loves a woman, but he has to be willing to risk looking like a fool, maybe even give up everything in order to win her heart and start a new life that brings bliss and joy. Don't we all want some sort of love story that's like that in some way? Or a hero in a superhero movie has to fight against all the odds, against powers that seem far greater than he is, has to fight the tyranny of an evil ruler or some kind of powerful alien king, right? in order to free the universe from doom or ultimate invasion and destruction. We love these stories because they are little glimpses into the actual story of the universe, the story that all the people that we know have to somewhat suffer in order to then bring about a greater glory than anyone ever imagined. But it has to be done by one who can actually take it, who can actually take the suffering and still win. All the stories of the Old Testament are about this, but they're pointing to the ultimate story about it, which Jesus says is his. The Old Testament was always pointing to him. Through the ordinary and extraordinary events in the Old Testament, he's saying, 
These people's lives were preparing you to see me, the one who would actually save from ultimate realities like death. Here's the thing, friends. All of life is a matter of interpretation. You and I interpret constantly and continually. We are always assigning meaning to things. That's what it means to interpret. With our minds, we interpret the meaning of events. And what Jesus is saying is, are you interpreting your your life correctly? Who gets to determine the interpretation of what your life is? Is it you? Because most of us hold very strongly to the fact that the greatest interpretation we believe in or trust is our own. We think our thoughts are the highest thoughts in many respects. With our minds, we interpret the meaning of events, and so we interpret our reality for ourselves. But Jesus says, we have this problem. We are not the ultimate interpreters of reality. So our minds cannot think the best thoughts that they need to think in order to interpret reality. But also, secondly, so our hearts. And this one's shorter, I promise. Not only do we have to overcome foolishness in order to think about the right interpretation of life and Jesus, we have to overcome what he says is how slow you are, how slow of heart you are to believe. So he says you have a problem, you and I have a problem with unbelief. And what is unbelief? A heart that is slow to trust anything but its own interpretation. Slow to trust So foolish minds that are unable to really grasp the true nature of what is real, how to interpret correctly, but then also hearts as a result that are slow to trust anything but our own interpretations. Slow to trust that Jesus actually could be the one he says that he is. So all of life is a matter of interpretation. And with our hearts, we interpret the worth of trusting someone or something. What is is belief, really? Isn't it trust? And the only reason that you and I trust something is we've deemed it trustworthy. It's worthy of being trusted. It has so much ultimate worth, such ability that we think, of course I will trust that. You don't get into a car that has a wheel missing and think, I trust this to go down the highway well. But if it's a brand new car that has been put together well, you don't think anything of it. You get in and drive away. You trust it because you've deemed it, you've looked at it and said, that is a worthy road vehicle. It's not going to collapse or crash or hit something or throw me off the road. That's why you get in your car and drive. You don't get into a car and drive that you think is untrustworthy. That's what belief is. It's a trust. It's a trust. And you only trust what you have deemed worthy. So the question for that is, what have you deemed worthy? What interpretation of things have you decided is most worth trusting your life with? What is Jesus saying? He's saying it's foolish not to look at and consider and think deeply about how the entire Bible, all of history, points to him. It's about him. The Bible includes stories of broken families, of difficulty at work, of waiting and waiting and waiting for the thing that you long for. Stories of adultery in marriages, of idolatry in worship, stories of judgment for sin, but mercy for sinners. And he says, yeah, all of that, it's about me. I fulfill it. I do it. I can save the broken marriages. I can save you from bad worship. All the longing and waiting that you've had, I can fulfill. And he says, but yet you are also slow of heart, slow of heart to trust that God really knows what he's doing and that he most shows what he's doing by making Jesus fully known. That even in the face of a world full of suffering, God might just actually be working even through the suffering to bring about glory, to restore a world that is a place of honor, a 
place of acceptance, a place of welcome, of belonging, of holiness and goodness, of peace. So final question, what are you going to do with Jesus? And maybe even more importantly, what is Jesus going to do with you? It could be easy for me to end the sermon right here and say, look, in order for you to not be foolish and slow in your hearts, here's what you have to do. Go read the Bible. Think through it. Think more deeply about it. See how Jesus is connected to all the Old Testament. And there's a lot of ways that we should do that and can do that. And I can say also, believe. You have a problem with belief? Well, believe. Believe Jesus. Start trusting him. Trust him more than you trust yourself. Go in peace. Amen. But you would surely walk out of here pretty discouraged, would you not? Because if you've recognized yourself in any of these realities, you know that there's a problem with telling you to just go think and go trust. And the problem with that is that if you have a broken mind and the solution is go think more deeply, become a better thinker, how can you do that if the mind is the thing that's broken? If I say that you, if Jesus says you have a broken heart, something that is trusting the wrong things, and I tell you, go trust harder. How can you go trust harder when your trust system is broken? You trust the wrong things already. And this is where it matters that it says in verse 15 and 16, as they talked, these disciples, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them, verse 16, but they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing him. Now, here's the thing. Jesus does tell, tell all of us, you have a faulty system in your mind. You actually could think some of these things out. You have a faulty system in your heart. You could actually believe more trustworthily in me. However, why does Jesus hide himself from them and instead focus on showing them himself in the scriptures? Isn't that strange? Look, if you had just risen from a grave, wouldn't the best, wouldn't you just immediately go play pranks on your friends? I would. I would just like, if I wrote, if people went to my funeral, I would just show up at their workplace, just be sitting at their desk, right? You know, just see the reactions. Or I'd show up in their apartment. I'd go say hello. I'd go like stand by their car and just turn around when they, like, you would go mess with your friends, wouldn't you? You would want to be like, guys, guess what? I died, remember? You were at my funeral, but also I'm alive. How would you not? Why would you do anything but prevent. You should do everything to show yourself, right? And Jesus doesn't. Everyone he's shown up to doesn't recognize him. And it says he's prevented them from fully doing it. And so here's the thing. You can't, you can recognize somebody only if you already knew them. Jesus doesn't say they can't see him. He's not a ghost. They're walking with him. They're literally having a conversation with him on the road. It doesn't say they can't see him. It says they can't recognize him. They were kept from recognizing Jesus. They were prevented, which means they could have recognized him if they had been made able. Jesus comes to these guys who are completely disappointed with their lives. They are downcast. They are sad. They are confused about what to make, how to interpret the events of their life. They don't know what to look forward to or what to hope in anymore. They have questions and thoughts about what it all means, but they are trusting the wrong interpretation. They are trusting their own interpretation of reality. And their interpretation, like all of our interpretations, is incomplete. So Jesus reveals himself, but first 
not as the risen Lord Savior in front of their face, but as the risen Lord who was always predicted and promised from Scripture. He takes them, Emmaus is a seven miles from Jerusalem. He takes them on a seven-mile Bible study, showing them that all the things they read that they knew, they didn't really know. And if they had, they would have seen him as the central focus of everything. Yet despite Jesus revealing to us that we have this problem with our minds, problem with our hearts, these things are broken and that we can't fix it, he's come to show us that he can. The significance, the meaning, the correct interpretation of Jesus wasn't even self-evident to the people who knew him for three years and walked with him, who were literally standing in front of his face. They didn't get it. So that's not a requirement. It is not a requirement for you to stand in front of the risen Lord Jesus in his face, in the flesh, right this moment. That won't do it for you because it didn't do it for them. Historical facts don't interpret themselves. The mere facts of the Bible will not correctly interpret themselves. What Jesus is saying is to interpret reality, the Bible, and everything correctly, you have to be given the chief interpreter. You have to receive the one who can actually do it. Here's the thing. They were essentially blind, but in one sense, it wasn't their fault. They had been kept from seeing him. But here's the thing. In verse uh, 45, it says that Jesus went and was with all of his disciples, and he opened their minds to, to understand the Scriptures. The very things he'd just been teaching them through, now he opens their minds to understand. And in verse 32, it says that as the disciples were eating dinner with him and Jesus got up to leave, he vanished from their sight. He disappeared. And then the, at the same moment that he disappeared, they realized it was him. And it says now that their hearts were burning. The slow of heart became heartburn. And they were utterly on fire. They immediately turned around and walked seven miles back to Jerusalem. They walked back to the place of pain, back to the place of confusion, back to the place of conflict, back to the place of struggle in their lives. Why? Because they'd seen what they said is the risen Lord. And suddenly, those whose minds had been closed and broken were opened. And those whose hearts had been burdened with hopelessness were now burning with a new reality. That somebody had risen from the grave and had actually come and revealed themselves to him. And here's the thing about it. There's this objective thing that Jesus gives them, and it's great because he gives it to you and me also. Why do you think he vanished right away as soon as they realized it was him, as soon as he opened their eyes to see that it was him, then he vanished? Why? I think it's because he's saying, though my personal presence will be with you always by the power of the Holy Spirit, which gets talked about in the Gospel of John in 14, chapter 14 and 16, he says, even though I'm going to be with you in my personal presence, what I want you to know is I can vanish and I'm still with you. If you learn to see me in the scriptures, you will know that I am always there and you will always have the correct interpretation. You will have the objective reality of what God is doing in the scriptures. It's there, it's history, and it's put before you. But also, none of that will matter unless it also becomes a subjective reality in which Jesus himself comes to you and you know how you know it because your mind is open to Scripture, and suddenly all you want to do is go to that in order to understand your life now. You want to see Him in Scripture so that you know how you can see Him now. And something changes within you 
None of this hopelessness, this deadness, this lifelessness, but instead burning hearts that say there is an everlasting hope. There is something that defeats death. There is something that conquers all the things that stood against us. And it turns out that the thing that is most hard sometimes to believe about the world and about Jesus, that a good God could actually still be in control of a world full of suffering, it was the suffering itself that is what brings us to salvation. So here's the thing, walking is a movement, and they were walking on the road, and we've been talking about what it means to walk with Jesus, but at Jesus, as you can see, it isn't really up to you just trying to find a way to walk with Jesus, but rather, did you see, Jesus comes and walks with them. It's the only way. Jesus opens our eyes. Jesus opens our hearts. The Christian mind, then, is being restored to its correct function by which we interpret all of life through Jesus and His Word. And the Christian heart is being restored to its correct function. To be able to say, there is nothing more worthy of my trust than the one who can break a grave. I'm going to trust the one who's undefeated in death. You remember, maybe you don't, because this is pretty old now, The Sixth Sense, that movie with Bruce Willis. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but you know what? It's been out 20 years, so. In The Sixth Sense, you know the way that it ends? right? It turns out that Bruce Willis's character was dead the entire time, and you suddenly go back. The first time you ever see it, you go back and you're like, wait a second, he was dead all those times? And you go watch, you immediately watch the movie again because you have to see, that doesn't work, does it? But you do. You realize he really was dead the whole time, but it was kept from you. You couldn't see it. You didn't realize it. You didn't recognize it. He was dead the entire time. And suddenly it makes sense of why he was sitting with his wife and always seeming to try to like get a hold of her in a way, to connect with her, and she just seemed so cold and distant. You're like, well, because he wasn't actually there. He was dead. And you go back and you reinterpret the movie now. You realize that something you had, you missed a hugely important interpretive lens. And the movie was set up to do that so that at some point it revealed to you something you hadn't recognized. But when you recognized it, it changed the whole way you understood the story. And that's exactly what Jesus does here except that he's not dead, leaving us in this lifeless state of coldness. and He's actually alive. And that's the thing that most changes the story, is that he comes back and now you see all the other things are about the one whom all things is about, the one who can actually conquer all of our problems and our fears, who can overcome death and set us free. And Jesus, I love this, came and does this with the guys who were walking away, the guys who'd given up. And that is hugely good news for you and I, because here's the thing, you and I, our our problem was we have, one of our problems that we've been talking about, this mind-heart problem, is that we blindly trust our own interpretation. We think it's blind trust to walk by faith, but you're always walking by faith. Our problem is blind trust. These guys are blindly walking home because they've trusted their own interpretation, thinking it's all over. And then here's what happens. Jesus shows up on the road to them. They don't recognize him, but eventually he reveals himself to them, changes their whole paradigm. They are willing to walk back into the hardness of their former reality because they have a new and living hope. Jesus shows up to them, and this is great news for you and I. 
for you and I who blindly trust our own interpretation about a lot of things because he doesn't choose you based on your great resume. He doesn't choose you based on your past or your pedigree or your power. He doesn't choose you based on your family. He doesn't choose you based on how faithful and servant-hearted you are. He doesn't choose you based on your goodness. He doesn't choose you on your ability to be really intellectual and read the Bible well or anything else. He doesn't choose you for any of that. He chooses you because he's the Lord, and he loves you, and he wants you to have the same things that he has. And this has to come home to our hearts in a very personal way. You will never understand the Bible unless the chief interpreter of it shows up to you. But the thing that he shows us on this road to Emmaus is that he wants to show up to anybody, even the people walking away from him. He shows up even when we are confused about how to interpret the events of our lives, how to understand the pain or the suffering, he shows up. So friends, this is the call to us today. There's really, in one sense, nothing for you and I to do, but simply to say, when you say, objectively, God has been doing this plan all along, and subjectively, I trust the risen Lord. You bring together the objective and the subjective. That's your new life. Everything opens up to you in a different way. Oh, to grace, how great a day.